Welcome to Indie Cider, where we go beyond the game and meet the developers behind today's indie hits. Hello and welcome to Indie Cider, where I play indie games and then interview the developers. My name is Ken Gagney, and this week I'll be speaking with Matt Blair and John Austin of A Stranger Gravity, developers of the game Gathering Sky, which just came out last week for PC, Mac, Linux, iOS, and Android. Gathering Sky, formerly known by the name Apsis, A-P-S-I-S, is a game where you control a flock of birds as they fly through the sky. The game is played from a top-down perspective, and the only input, in the case of my MacBook Pro, is the trackpad, or in the case of a desktop, your mouse, or on a mobile device, it's touch. Simply put, you click where you want the birds to go, and you hold down on that position, and the birds will fly in that direction. The screen scrolls, so you don't need to continuously be pushing your mouse left and right, but you can move it up and down to adjust their trajectory. As they fly through the sky, there are some terrestrial obstacles, oddly enough, sort of like skies of Arcadia, perhaps. There are just islands floating in the sky, perhaps also like Zelda Skyward Sword. But these do not present any sort of a threat. In fact, that's one of the things that's unique about this game. There are almost no threats. There's no attacking, no defensive or offensive. There is no power-ups, no score. You're simply controlling a flock of birds as they fly through the sky. It's actually quite relaxing. Critics may even say that isn't even a game, but I think it is, and I enjoy it. There are some variations among the levels. There are five levels. And in terms of gameplay, there will be some things that might change the number of birds in your flock, which can increase or decrease as you encounter more birds in the sky and get them to join your murmuration. But generally speaking, there's not much to be afraid of in this game. The real joy comes not only from the simple control, but also from the visuals and the audio. The visuals are delight. They're very colorful as the land flows beneath your flock and various moods are created as a result of that. Levels are hot or cold or welcoming. And there's a soundtrack to accompany it. In fact, that's one of the things you'll find out delayed the game's release, in fact, from when I first saw it two years ago at Boston Fig, the Festival of Indie Games. The soundtrack is courtesy Mr. Dren McDonald and the San Francisco Conservatory. A string orchestra provided the soundtrack, which ebbs and flows according to what's happening on the screen. One score might dovetail perfectly into another as you progress from level to level. It really does a great job of setting the mood, and the soundtrack is available separately. Now before I get to the interview, I do have a trifecta of full disclosures to share with you. First, the developers provide me with a Steam code for this game. I did not pay for it. Second of all, the developers were in the audience of my panel on Sex, Sexy, and Sexism, Fixing Gender Inequality in Gaming at PAX East 2014. That panel was the foundation for my other podcast, Polygamer. Now, the developers of Gathering Sky had no interaction with that panel. I'm just saying that they were there. However, they did have a profound impact on the existence of the podcast you are listening to now. The concept of interviewing developers and pairing it with gameplay footage on my YouTube channel is a format that I conceived of as a way to talk about Gathering Sky. But the game ended up not being released when originally estimated, and I wasn't able to apply that format to that game, but I already had it in mind when I encountered Logan Harrington's Gone, which was the very first episode of Indie Cider. So while Logan gave me the content, it was actually Gathering Sky that gave me the format. And so if it were not for them, you probably wouldn't be listening to this podcast now. So with those full disclosures out of the way, I nonetheless do think Gathering Sky is a pretty neat game. It, you can get it on mobile for about 350 or on Steam for about 5 bucks. 
It takes about an hour to play. In fact, if you watch my YouTube interview with these gentlemen, you'll find that the interview actually lasted longer than the game did. We spent more time talking about the game than playing the game, because you can finish the whole thing in 30 to 60 minutes. Nonetheless, I still think it's worth your time. So here's the interview. If you like it, please subscribe to YouTube channel GameBits or to the IndieCider podcast on iTunes, where you can leave a review to help other people find the podcast. Or drop me a line, feedback at IndieCider.net, or follow me on Twitter at GameBits. I love hearing feedback. Let me know what kind of games you like hearing on this show, if you have any favorite episodes, or games you want me to feature on future episodes. I'm always looking for ideas. Thanks so much. Here's the interview. Today I am honored to be speaking with a talented duo from A Stranger Gravity, developers of Gathering Sky. Hello, John. Hey, I'm John Austin, co-founder of uh, A Stranger Gravity. Thanks, John. And also with you is Matt. Howdy. I'm Matt, the one of the other co-developers, Retrio, and John and I are the software engineers slash designers. Good to meet you all. Awesome. Thank you. Hi, John Austin. Hi, Matt Blair. So I'm very curious to know, uh, this game, Gathering Sky, came out less than a week ago. What has the past week been like for the two of you? Go ahead. Yeah, it's been, it's been, it's been pretty crazy. Um, yeah, I, I mean... So, so I mean, the game has been done, uh, like in terms of like code and you know, all that stuff, um, for I think maybe two or three weeks now. But uh, all of the business and all of the the press and just and getting it ready for the stores has just been kind of a lot of work. So this is our first our first commercial release. So all of the stuff on the the side of just kind of getting it out there and all of that that sort of stuff is is kind of what's been busying us. And it seems like you've been getting some pretty good press too. I even saw an article on Offworld.com. Yes, I was particularly happy about that. Um, I didn't even have to go to the trouble of tipping them to it. Somehow it crossed their paths anyway. And Offworld and Destructoid and, uh, I mean, a surprising amount of sites have picked up on it. And, you know, nothing, nothing titanic in the global world of media, but in our circles, it's been definitely very exciting. Yeah, we actually we got one feature recently from PC Gamer, which was, which is pretty cool. <laughs> that's something that I you know five years ago or as a kid, like I would have been like, wow, PC Gamer, and so that's kind of like a little bit of a fulfillment there. <laughs> so, what is your secret? Because here at IndieCider, I get emails from developers who are releasing their first games all the time, and I can never give them all the attention that they want or deserve. How did you, as this being your virgin outing as a commercial product, get so many studios or so many press outlets to pick up on the release of Gathering Sky? Yeah, I can probably talk about this because I've, I've probably been the main business development, yeah, if you, you want to call it that role. John's definitely <laughs> the press man, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, honestly, like the way I see it, I mean, I've been, I've been learning a lot in the last few years, just you know how this stuff works. Um, I was lucky enough to be able to work um, on the game out here in San Francisco. Right now I'm in San Francisco. So last fall I was also out here and I was able to go to events, meet people, go to different, you know, uh, conventions and that sort of thing. And you sort of like, you know, you start building contacts, you get introduced to some other people, you know, you start, you know, making a few friends and it it kind of sort of works from there. Um, Additionally, we were able to get some press lists from different conventions that we were accepted to and that sort of stuff. And, you know, I think it's mostly a matter of just like, putting in the effort of sending the emails and responding to the emails and following up and just doing that enough and, and maybe building up some amount of like, uh, uh, just, I guess not respect. That's not the right word, but like, so that the, I guess trust is probably the better word. Um, but I don't know. It, it, partially I'm still a little bit surprised myself because, you know, 
Yeah, after working on this for two years, and it's still kind of impressive that people think it's so in, in, interesting and cool. And it's like, yeah, you know, it's let's I've seen this a thousand times. So I think one reason it might be standing out is because this kind of game is not something people have seen a thousand times. I get so many press releases about another mobile match three mm. puzzle game. I've never gotten a press release for here's a game where you control a flock of birds. Do you, I'm sure that has something to do with it. Yeah, I think the nature of the game definitely. Uh, makes it stand out from the majority of new games that, that probably come across people's de- people's desks. Um, that, that gets you some distance of the way there. I would say catching people's eyes, only one part of it. And I think John really hit it when he said, it's all about just the footwork really like it's putting in the hours and hours to uh, follow up with all of these contacts, write these emails, make sure you're not just like, spamming people but trying to you know say something personal when you have something personal to say to people and uh, really maintaining your connections and this is really not what i expected when i decided i wanted to you know try my hand at game development but it's a huge part of making making a product making a product successful so what experiences led you to make this be your first game some people try something uh, less original, just to get their foot in the door or to make sure that they understand the mechanics of the games. But this kind of game is, as we said, unusual. And especially coming from a young studio with young developers, it's not what I would expect. So why a game about controlling a flock of birds? One of the reasons we picked a, a subject that many would call kind of far out, probably, is that this is not this is not something that we were relying on for primary sources of income. It's something that we knew we could be very experimental with. And when we realized that, we said, you know, why not take something really far out and see how, you know, see what we can do with it. In the embryonary stages of developing, uh, developing the game, we were thinking in terms of emotions. Really, this was this was not too long after uh, Journey had been released and. Um, several of us working on it were really, really big fans of that game company and uh, those similar sorts of unconventional but um, you know very moving kinds of experiences. And we looked at you know the potential for this new project in terms of trying to fill an emotional need that was uh, not really present in the games that we saw in the market. You know, when we look around, we see lots and lots of games that are uh, really exciting and really challenging and really uh, fun in certain senses. Uh, you can't see it, but there's huge scare quotes on fun right there. And <laughs> it's a certain type of fun that's not really, uh, it's not a fun that you would call like joyful or like, um, I don't know, <laughs> exuberant or, or lots of things that you would call fun in other contexts outside of games. It's the fun that's like very stressful and you know uh, <laughs> tense and lots of things that people enjoy, but are not you know the complete emotional diet that one needs. You know, a lot of people have really stressful jobs at work, and they come home and probably don't want to you know be yelled at by other people on Counter Strike or <laughs> you know lots of other experiences that you can that you can get right now we were trying to make something that fulfilled the need of working working with a system in a world instead of working against it and working against other people 
we really wanted it to be uh, a non-adversarial experience. And that just sort of manifested in something very uh, collective. And that led to thinking of, you know, groups of creatures working together and then flocks and then, um, you know, the freedom of being in the open sky and moving quickly and gracefully and all of these things just sort of fell out very naturally from this emotion, this emotional experience that we were trying to create. You say you didn't want to make an adversarial experience, but there are adversaries in this game. And I'll tell you, the first time that hawk appeared, I literally <laughs> jumped out of my seat because I thought this was supposed to be a relaxing game. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I felt like I was in the middle of Watership Down and my bunnies were being picked off left and right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, I mean, you're absolutely right. That part is not, I don't think anyone would claim relaxing. And Yeah, and there's many parts of the game, actually, that are not necessarily relaxing. Um, mm-hmm. But, but it's, I, I, maybe you can continue. It's a necessary part, we thought. Um, I mean, any any emotion is meaningless without its uh, sort of antipode. And the same is true of relaxation. In order to, to or I don't know if relaxation is the, is the right term, but the sort of tranquility and grace that we're trying to communicate, you really need to be, to be jerked out of that sometimes and to see to see the, the contrast there, to be able to appreciate other parts of it. And we feel like the contrast actually helps the overall experience. Um, it's, I mean, it's also, you know, a nice bit of engagement that, you know, when you're faced with this really uh, dramatic contrast, it suddenly draws your attention very clearly into this world. And that helps later on when you're getting when you're trying to further your emotional immersion, you could say. When I first played the game two years ago at Boston Fig, I didn't get far enough to find out if there were hawks and thunderstorms in that version of the game. Was that part of the early concept? Mm -hmm. Yeah, very, very early on, actually. Uh, We had a a non-digital prototype of the game that was... uh, Man, this was really interesting. We had this little tin cookie box, and... um, Bear with me here. And we stretched over it a uh, a nylon stocking, and uh, we were trying to simulate, uh, you know, without without building a system in code or anything. We were trying to simulate what it would be like to move around a a group of somethings, and so we had this box with a stocking over it, and we put a bunch of skittles on top of this, sort of resting over this like stretched. Uh, sheet of nylon <laughs> and you could press into it and uh, sort of like people, you know, like how you demonstrate gravity with like a rubber sheet. Um, these skittles would just sort of move around and follow your fingers when you put them down and you could, you know, move your flocks in different, uh, like, like move your flock of skittles in different directions <laughs> and make different groups of skittles. And it was more or less just feasibility check. Like, is this totally dumb or not? Um, and then part of that we had, um, we had is, you know, testing out the other emotional aspects of this. Someone was sitting, um, opposite the person playing with, uh, <laughs> with like a rubber band slingshot trying to, uh, imitate this, this predator. And you would shoot the rubber bands at this thing and try and break up the flock. And that's like from that point before we even had code, uh, we knew that we wanted that part in. 
What are some ways that the game has changed or evolved in the two years since I first saw it? It's actually kind of interesting because the the game as you played it in Bfig um, was very much kind of the complete experience and very very similar to what we have now. Um, so since then we've added another level, um, which we helped, we thought um, added a little bit of length and also sort of smoothed out the emotional curve um, and added a few more playful objects. Uh, we added some clouds that you could draw in and that sort of thing. Um, so we added a little more gameplay, but um, other than the, I mean, the whole San Francisco Conservatory thing, that was, that was a new part. Um, that's probably the biggest thing we've added. But other than that, it's actually surprisingly a similar sort of overall experience. But what we've put into it is mostly polishing. So we you know, added uh, much more detailed bird sprites. We've done a lot of work on adding more animations to the birds and trying to add make the wind look a lot better. Just basically spending the last, I guess, year... Man, it's like been it's almost two years now since Bfig, but just just kind of polishing it up and and, and working on it is uh, to make it as kind of just perfect as possible. Um, we all have really high standards, I think, in terms of what we want to release. Um, so, you know, the, even the small things were kind of what we wanted to look at. Yeah, John. John is downplaying the <laughs> the music here. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> did like all the programming for that, and there's a not not insignificant amount of programming. If you pay attention when you're playing through the game, the music tracks and the sound effects are cued at very specific times and they blend into one another and they uh, they loop when they need to and lots of these like, fairly sophisticated effects. Um, and John was like, managing all of that and you know working with Dren too. I, I would say that's probably the biggest thing that's changed since... Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, if <laughs> I can, yeah, I can talk about that. I don't know why exactly I was avoiding it, <laughs> but so what we have done since Bfig is that we've we brought on this new composer named Jen McDonald, and he actually approached us. Um, he was actually one of the judges for Indicate, and he was like, "I really love this." Was back um, uh, after Bfig, but before we brought him on, so he, he judged the game as it was, and he was like, "I really love your game, but it's the, the music is just awful, and it doesn't doesn't mesh at all." And he was just like really complaining about that, and he offered to kind of do a little um, kind of redub. So he took took some gameplay video and sort of puts something together to see what it might sound like. And, and it, we were completely blown away because it just sounded incredible. Um, so we started working with him. I mean, uh, it, was, it was an interesting process because we had never worked with kind of any kind of professional audio teams or, or anyone who's, who's kind of done that sort of area. Um, so it was, it was fascinating to work with him. Um, we ended up having to do a lot of code changes, I, writing a lot of uh, bindings for FMOD Studio and stuff like that. It was kind of a, an interesting project. Um, and, and eventually, we sort of got the opportunity to take what he had written and record it with um, the San Francisco Conservatory, which was incredible because they, it basically just added this this element of uh, of liveliness to the music that you really just don't get when you have samples and and uh, sort of um, pre made music like that. Um, so it, it really it really took it to the next level. And, and on top of that, like what we were doing before was that. I think Matt mentioned this briefly, but but we were basically taking a single track and playing that throughout most of the level, and it didn't really adapt or change. But because we had this this composer that was he was incredibly skilled and he could kind of do whatever we wanted, so we were able to make you know different layers come in and out at different times. Um, when you get near the little sort of floaty, um, spirity type creatures in the game, you'll notice it, it's it's pretty subtle, but like sort of different background tracks will, will come in based on how far you are away from them, or when you're over their trails, you'll have this sort of bubbling sounds, and and, and we could and we, because we were designing that from the ground up, we could make it really inclusive and and match 
what we were trying to accomplish with the game. Um, so it was a great experience. It's, uh, it was fantastic. It's really awesome that Dren approached you because I was wondering what that pitch would have been like. Hi, we are a company that's never released a game. We're still in college. It's about birds. And would you please perform a, str- a string soundtrack for us? Yeah. Uh, but no, th- this was his idea. And wow, that's amazing that you had that fortune. Yeah, I'm yeah, I mean, to make that pitch. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was interesting because, I mean, even with the old sound, he said it moved him enough that he really wanted to you know, take it to the next level. And I think he, he really believes in the project. And, the, and it, was, it was great that we were able to find someone that, that also sort of had the same mindset, the same sort of um, you know, heading as to where he, what kind of games he wanted to make. So if Dren, as a judge, came to you and said, I love your game, but your soundtrack needs work, full stop, and he didn't offer any help beyond that, what would the final game have sounded like? What would you have done with that feedback? It probably, I mean, we, you know, we, we, we get a lot of feedback, obviously. I mean, we, we definitely respect the judges. Um, but, I mean, when we, our heads at that point, so this was, man, this is so weird being a year away from this point. But, so this was a year ago. Um, and our heads were, were basically in re- release mode at that point. We were just getting the game ready for release. We put it through Indicade, you know, showing it off just to kind of get it out there. So, I mean, most likely we probably would just kind of get gone ahead with the release because, you know, we, we hadn't really worked with this sort of thing before. So, you know, <laughs> trying to jump in, you know, with both feet is you know, a little bit risky. It's also, you know, we didn't really have any entrance point, first of all, for that matter. Um, so it probably would have, it would have kept the same music. Um, and I'm, I'm really glad he approached us. Is it fair to say that Dren delayed the release of your game by like a year? <laughs> oh, totally. That's entirely true. <laughs> I mean, it was totally worth it. Of but, course, yeah, because you guys have very high standards, and when you saw that opportunity, you're like, "How can we not take this?" <laughs> yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Another change that the game underwent since I first saw it was the title. When I first saw it, it was called Apsis. Now it's called Gathering Sky. Why the change? <laughs> well, all right, I'll fess up to this. I was the one who came up with Apsis, and I thought it was a great title. It's it's a totally real English word. Uh, no one believes this, but it is. It's a term that has to do with orbital mechanics, actually. It's um, one of either the furthest or nearest points of an orbiting body to its center of orbit. And the reason this is a good name is <laughs> very metaphorical, but it's because this game is, um, in the way that I saw it at the beginning, I, this game is sort of about cycles and orbits and moving, you know, like... It, if you if you play all the way to the end, you can see how it's sort of about orbits and maybe some things beyond Earth and stuff like that. And to me, this was um, you know this was a, a very this was an original name. This is uh, a game that's sort of hinting at something that's not totally literal and an unusual enough word that it'll be memorable. It turns out I was wrong about a lot of that. So, <laughs> apsis is not a really memorable word for a lot of people. I don't know. Apparently, a lot of people don't know orbital mechanics. Who knew? Shocking. Yeah. People later pointed out that it sounds like abscess, and there's just lots of not great marketing qualities about it. So, I guess this was like a a year ago, maybe a year and a half. No, it was less than that. It was probably less than a year ago. We decided, like, okay, this needs to change. Um, no one can remember what this thing is called, and it's just not going to be something that we can market very well. Uh, so the three of us on the team generated probably, I think it was literally like six pages of names that we were considering. 
And it was an extremely labor-intensive process to narrow these down and pick out one that we thought would be uh, you know, searchable and memorable and also, of course, appropriate and fitting and you know, connotive of all the things that we want this game to embody. And Gathering Sky has, you know, it has the flock gathering aspect to it. And we think it's just a nice, positive, uplifting sort of ring to it. Um, so that's, that's what it is now. Now, we talked about the soundtrack. I have a question about the visuals. As the flock is making its migration, the ground over which they're flying changes. Sometimes it's very pastoral. Sometimes it looks cold. Sometimes it looks hot. Are these any particular lands that you're modeling the game after? Is this supposed to be set in a real place? Yeah, that's. I mean, it's an interesting question. We there, there's an overall sort of like in, in internally that we have. We have this kind of idea of this world is, but it's not. It's not like a necessarily a real place that we're necessarily trying to model out. Um, we definitely. So Crystal, who did all of the the artwork, she's incredible. But she. She took a lot of inspiration from like aerial photography, looking at you know how how our city is aligned and you know what do things look like from above. Um, so in in that way, it's it's inspired very much by you know Earth and and kind of the way humans have sort of set up civilizations. Um, but it's yeah, it's, it's not necessarily necessarily like it's a one to one mapping um, between a specific area, or, you know, specific place in the game. It was mostly about trying to take this emotional arc that we we started with at the beginning of the game. And map that into the background, and so in the beginning, it's it's very playful. There's little red houses dotting the green landscape, and you know, as you get further on with the, with like the hawk, the colors get a little more have a little more contrast in them. You get some like deep purples and that sort of stuff. Um, so so it's basically trying to sort of map the game out in terms of color, um, and then sort of see what we can we can go from there. Yeah, at one point in the early stages of development, we we. <laughs> decided that it would be a cool idea to map out the entire game as just like one line of color and see what the whole thing looked like together. And it pretty much lined up perfectly with the uh, emotional arc that we'd drawn out to to develop the narrative. Well, sort of narrative, but that was <laughs> that was a fun exercise. That's really interesting that you have all these different progressions that you had to calculate to weave in and out of each other. You have the narrative, the emotion, the color, Dren soundtrack, all weaving in and out of each other. That must have been very complicated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's... It's, yeah. Yeah, that's probably the, the biggest constraint on, like, if, if we had wanted to add, if we had some idea of, you know, an interaction that we wanted to add to the game, and if we, you know, had to think about where that would go, um, the big constraint is the fact that we have all these different arcs that, basically have to line up exactly for the game to work at all. And so we can't just add another level somewhere. It, you know, we'd have to fill out the arc in every, in every aspect to match that and make sure it doesn't uh, detract from any other part of the game. Now, as the birds are migrating, there is some option that the players have to explore this world. They don't have to stick to the air current. They can go off on their own path as far as the world extends before they hit impassable clouds. And they can find these little glowy spirits, as you mentioned, that cause rocks in these floating islands to resonate. Or they can just ignore those and keep going on their way. What is the correct way to play this game? <laughs> so I it's a, it's a good question because we I think we get that question a lot. People 
a lot of people pick it up and, and ask us if, if if they're doing it right, you know, <laughs> like, am I playing correctly? Like, um, I mean, one of the, I think one of the core tendons we, uh, that we wanted to achieve with the game um, was to, to kind of create a game that, that you can, that however you're playing it, it's enjoyable for you. So we wanted to, to make it fun for the person who just sort of like, you know, sits back and, and watches the birds go and doesn't really give them too much guidance. And we also wanted to try to make it fun for the people who really like to get in there and kind of explore every nook and cranny. And I, I think we were able to kind of come across a nice, a nice balance there. Um, it's kind of an interesting design problem um, to, try to, to try to design sort of for the, those sorts of different play styles all, all at once. Um, but we, we try to... In, in terms of your question, we, we we try to not impose any kind of you know way to play the game. And if you're if you're enjoying yourself, like that's that's the way to play the game. Yeah, I'd say it definitely was one of the biggest design problems we face um, in terms of designing interactions. It's one of the one of the primary goals we had in the interactions we were designing is that we wanted it to appeal to people who don't play a lot of games. And people who don't play a lot of games, when you hand them uh, any game, basically they're almost immediately going to question whether they're doing things right. And it's just not a positive thing to, to be telling yourself that you're doing something wrong or that this isn't the way someone expected you to, to do something and that you know, it's, this thing is, this is not fun anymore and it's your fault. And we absolutely wanted to avoid that because this is, I mean, this experience, the emotional experience that we wanted to convey it's absolutely not anything that needs to be constrained to just gamers. So because of that, we had to try and make it always feel like you're never playing the wrong way, which, yeah, which there isn't a whole lot of game literature on. Not many people try to make something that <laughs> you can't lose at. So it was very challenging. So there's no way for the players to really do it wrong, but what about the birds themselves? Are they behaving right according to how birds should behave? Like, if a hawk comes and scatters a flock, is that actually a physics-based simulation of how birds behave? Is is this basically what I'm asking? Is is this game modeled after real-world birds? Yeah, um, I can definitely take this one. Um, so there's, it's kind of interesting. Um, people and the humans, I think, in general have been interested by the way that birds move for a long time. So you can you can look all the way back to the 60s. Um, and in fact, the algorithm we're using to simulate the birds is something called BOIDS. Um, B-O-I-D-S. Um, and it's, it's, I mean, it's just a, such a super old algorithm. And it's, 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 in my opinion, this algorithm is actually one of my favorites because it, it's so beautiful. Because it creates these interesting and complex interactions but the, the rules are so simple so i mean I'll, i can go through it real quick so basically the way it works is that just every bird um when it's flying it it, it looks around itself at the flock around it and it sort of um tries to fly towards other birds um then also it tries to steer away from other birds a little bit so it doesn't crash um so if they get too close they'll, they'll steer away and then the last one which is the, probably the most important uh is just that they all steer towards the the average direction of the birds around them. Um, so if the, their friends are moving one way or starting to turn, then they'll sort of turn with them. Um, and what's fascinating, and this is also used for fish and other sorts of grouping um, uh, animals, but it's fascinating that if you take, if you take this model, the super simple algorithm, and compare it um, to actual flocks of birds and animals and herds, it's really, really similar. Um, in fact, it's like, um, and that's why it's been around for so long, um, just because it's, it's so 
it's just so elegant and it works so well. Um, and, and there's actually when we were when we were researching um, for the game, um, you can go online and find a ton of um, videos of you know starlings flocking or different types of birds. Um, and we found this really great video of a hawk attacking a flock of starlings. Um, it's really cool. I, I definitely recommend trying to search that up. Um, but you can see how the, and the, the birds will split up. And, and if you sort of map it back um, to, to this Boyd's algorithm, it, it's very, very similar. Uh, it's really cool. Oh, that's fascinating. I didn't realize that there were algorithms that were half a century old that could be used for a game like this. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's something that I really actually kind of, that's part of the history is kind of why I like it. You know, it's, it's, it's just, it's really interesting. Now, Gathering Sky came out simultaneously for PC, Mac, Android, and iOS. And I've featured a lot of games on this podcast that are available for all those platforms, but not often all at once. They'll come out on mobile first and then move to desktop or more often vice versa because they find that releasing a game on mobile and then trying to raise the price for desktop is not often well met, whereas releasing it on desktop and then cheapening it for mobile is an easier transition, whereas you chose to release on all the platforms simultaneously. What was the thinking behind that approach? I just want to point out that we are also available on Linux, and <laughs> I find that important. Oh, I, I, you know what? I actually looked that up on Steam, and I, I didn't see the little Linux icon on oh, Steam. I think they call it Steam OS now, I think. Okay. It's kind of unclear on Steam, but yes, um, Linux as well. Very important correction. Thank you. <laughs> um, only important to me, really. But uh, it's been, man, like this difference that you've just pointed out is one of the main reasons why uh, the game has been, uh, you know, like 95% done for a long time. It's that the design of the experience was finished, and then we looked ahead at all the platforms that we wanted to hit and it's a substantial amount of work to, to get confidence that you're going to have a quality experience on all of these platforms um and you know not not just focus on one and release it and focus on another and release it there's i could talk for hours about this i i i think that there's probably a lot of wisdom in focusing on one platform and making that the best experience possible there's so much involved in uh, making things work across devices, particularly on Android, that it's <laughs> debatably worthwhile and probably, uh, you know, of really questionable value for small studios. Um, you know, if you have a team that's dedicated to quality assurance on lots of platforms, that might make sense. Um, however, for indies, uh, I think we've, like, I, I'm glad that we did this once to to see everything that's involved, but but man, is it a lot of work. One of the reasons why we went fully cross-platform is that we just kind of... The initial goal of the game was not necessarily to sell a ton of copies. I mean, we obviously wanted to, to make, you know, some try to make back what we invested in the game, but um, we really just wanted to get it in the hands of people, and we felt like while it was a lot of work, substantially a lot of work when we got down to it, um, it felt like it kind of a, a good move just to be able to... So, like, everyone that we wanted to play... Uh, could play um so yeah in, in many ways actually i feel like we kind of got a little bit lucky because um you know like matt said i don't know necessarily if we'd want to do this again when we're doing the next serious project because it did take so much time um I mean, much of the last year i mean when, you, when, we, when we say it hasn't changed the surface level hasn't necessarily always changed but a lot of the underlying stuff has um 
So while we might not want to do it for the next project, I feel like it kind of just worked out. Um, and, and actually, you mentioned that the price thing, that's, that, that, that has been stressing me out for the last six to eight months. Um, it's like in my nightmares at the moment. I mean, because I'm here in San Francisco and you're know, talking to other developers. They're saying, yeah, no, you never you know, put a, a price differential on the same product on two different platforms. Like, just go poorly. You'll, you know, it's a bad idea. And we did it, you know, just to, <laughs> just, just to say we could, I guess. Um, and so far, we've had a, a, a great response. Like, we haven't had anyone even mention it. And I, I'm really glad we took that risk now to, to, to kind of diverge from the norm um, because uh, I mean I, I don't want to get into the economics too much but I mean the the, the, the price you can sell a game at um, is really not based on the product itself this is something that we've kind of been figuring out it's, it's really based on the market so the, the same thing that's on Steam versus iOS it needs a totally different price because it's a different set of people buying it it's a different set of surrounding sort of media um, so we felt like it was most honest to the game itself to have different prices there. Um, and we're really, I can, I'm blessed that no one's, that everyone's sort of taken that and hasn't really, you know, gone up in arms. Um, maybe the game is calming enough that it sort of soothes all the naysayers. <laughs> <laughs> now, did I interpret one of your emails correctly that you're recommending people who are buying the desktop version do, th- do so through Humble Bundle instead of Steam? Mm-hmm. And why is that? Uh, well, I mean, Humble Bundle is, uh, I mean, you, you get the same game, you actually get a Steam code. Um, and the benefit is we get more cut, um, especially if you buy it through the widget on our site, we get a higher you know, profit cut. You know. um, you're also giving to charity, you can't get wrong with that. You're supporting kind of more of an indie, I mean, Humble is a great company, so I mean, supporting them is also another thing that you know, I'm really a big fan of. So, I mean, you're not going to get a different game, but... In terms of you know who you're choosing to support, you know I, I think we're definitely in, in favor of, of Humble. And there's nothing in the Steam contract, for example, that says you can't openly discourage people from buying your game through them. Uh, we can't really talk about the Steam contract, but yes, <laughs> but it's I mean selling it on Humble and Steam is uh, totally fine. Yeah, fair enough. Excellent. <laughs> Okay, so we talked about the different platform releases and the differential in the prices. What I'm curious to know next is where does A Stranger Gravity go from here? This is an unusual first outing for a new company. How do you follow that up? Do you next simulate the migration of elk across the plains of North America? Do you do Gathering Sky 2? What's next? Elk is actually a DLC that's forthcoming. No, I'm just kidding. Awesome. (laughs) Yeah, no, I I would personally love to know the answer to this question. Um, I think we've been talking a lot, and uh, we have some ideas of, of where to go, but really it's it's been just sort of a crunch for a while to make sure everything goes well with this launch, and uh, our our plans are a little bit nebulous, but one the one certain thing is that we need to, um, and once the dust settles on Gathering Sky, we need to uh, take a break from, from making... Uh, a monolithic project as a team and work on some smaller stuff. Um, this being the first project we, you know, we've really found our, our limitations and we know the things that we need to work on to get better as, you know, craftspeople. And a lot of that, um, is just like prototyping, making lots of little things and experimenting and getting better at iterating and getting better at throwing things out. Probably some practicing on that for a while. And beyond that up in the air, no pun intended. 
Because a lot of companies have sort of a aesthetic to their products. There's a DNA that connects all their games. Even when they're different intellectual properties, you can look at a game and say, oh, sure, that game must be by this developer or this publisher. What mm-hmm. do you want a Stranger Gravity to be known for five years down the road? <clears throat> that's, that's, a, that's a really tricky question. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe we can we can probably both give answers to this. Hopefully they're not okay. different. Sounds good. Um, <laughs> but I think um, one thing that we want people to see in all of our games is that they're thoughtful and respectful towards the player. And I mean that in in terms of um, not being not being full of fluff, not trying to um, <laughs> extort people for money or any of the things that uh, you know you can see in mobile games sometimes. But um, definitely respectful and trying to and, and making an experience that actually aims to. Uh, teach you or better you as um, you know as an emotional or intellectual being um, and this is extremely lofty um, so you'll forgive me if it if, if this comes off as pretentious but I think there is really a lot of potential as we've seen demonstrated with gathering sky I think in terms of um, actually like meaningfully improving emotional well-being of people um, with these interactive experiences and that's something that I could see us continuing to do. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I have nothing to add. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I'm sure it's a relief to both of you that you're on the same page. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've, we've talked about this a lot. but <laughs> Just like we were hoped. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I've really enjoyed playing Gathering Sky, and I've really enjoyed hearing more about how it came to be and where it's going from here. Remind our listeners where we can find more information about Gathering Sky online. You can find more about Gathering Sky at gathering-sky.com. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, yeah, too. Thanks for having us. It's been great talking with you. This has been Indie Cider, a Game Bits production. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback at indiesider.net. There was actually one question that I didn't work into the interview because I didn't really see a place for it, but I'm personally curious, so if you can spare me just a moment. Uh, So, John, I met you at the same time. I I met you at Boston Fig two years ago, which is the same Boston Fig that Robin Hunicky was the keynote speaker at, and then you went on to work at Phenomena, correct? Yeah, the pronunciation is Phenomena, like uh, Menomena, but, you know. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) They have that on their website you how to pronounce it they just have that the video. pronunciation <laughs> guide is phenomena <laughs> yeah that's <laughs> great so was it just coincidence that i met both of you at the same place or did you also meet robin at boston fig that that was actually just total coincidence i mean we we knew her a little bit um like uh you know from a distance um but uh yeah i didn't actually meet her there so the way i ended up um working with her at phenomena i was just um I mean, so I was still in school back then, and I was able to get the sort of internship program, and which allowed me to go to some sort of startup. So I, you know, just kind of cold emailed Phenomena and asked them if they wanted, you know, an intern, and they were like, "Sure." Um, so it, it, I mean, it was a great experience working with them, and and Robin has been a huge help. I mean, not not just in terms of like guidance, but just I mean, I, I mean, I mean, she's basically been a huge help in everything. So I mean, a, a lot of the things that we're learning are, are because she kind of tips us off in the right direction. So, so it's been it's been a blessing to have her kind of around to ask bounce questions off of.